0: You might have as an advisor a recipe that has always been working. And why would you change if it has been working? But the fact of matter is we are in a transition right now and the money is also being transferred to the next generation. It's estimated that around $900 billion will be passing through from hand to the younger generation, so millennials and women that will be inheriting that money from usually their parents or their husband. And what we know is that women and millennials aren't the two segments that are more interested in investing through to their values, to their priorities, closer to the benefits for community, for the environment, for the planet. So if, as an advisor, you're not being mindful of that shift well, you're at risk of seeing up to maybe 70% of your assets, just leaving your practice because you're not being proactive in your conversations, and you're not connecting with the successors of your clients. So you've been working very hard at building your practice. And because you're not careful of those shifts happening, you're not aligning with the investment preferences of your new clients, of the heirs of your actual clients, you might be losing that asset to other advisors that are seizing that opportunity. So it really is something to keep in mind. The responsible investing and understanding the ESG and the value of it can really act as an insurance policy for your practice in a way.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My special guests today are Deborah DeBass, Senior Specialist for Responsible Investing at Desjardins, Pasquale Posteraro, CFA and Equity Portfolio Manager at Desjardins Global Asset Management, also known as DGAM, and Nicola Fritz, Portfolio Specialist at London based Impacts Asset Management. This is the Insight is Capital podcast.
0: The
2: views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational
0: purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice.
1: Deborah Pasquale, Nicola, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
0: Thank you, Pierre. It's
3: a pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you, Pierre. Also a pleasure to be here.
3: Thank you, Pierre. It's great to be with you today.
1: Great to have you all. It would be helpful. If each of you could take a turn to tell us about your backgrounds, the arc of your career, and what you're up to these days, Deborah?
0: Sure. So I'm Deborah the Bass. I work as the responsible investment specialist for the I've been working in the responsible investment space since two thousand and eight when we actually first launched the Society portfolios. They were the first responsible investing portfolios offered in Canada and and in Quebec. So most of my work is done educating advisors and investors alike to the benefits of responsible investing.
2: Great. Thank you. Pasquale? Yeah. So for myself, most of my career, I've been an equity analyst since 2004, when I started at Standard Life Investment. Prior to DejaVe, even I was at Investor Group at McKenzie, where I really started to learn the ESG part of how to integrate it into our equity analyst. As an investment analyst, we always I always put an emphasis on the governance side. So it's always been part of the process, but really in the last six years, it's really just... Integrating the whole process because ESG is a broader t- uh, thematic. So we really with Desjardins and with the uh, ESG team within Desjardins Global Asset Management is really integrating the two, not only from the equity, but a fixed income side as well and other assets like real estate. So happened at the uh, at Desjardins Global Asset Management in the last two years, uh, so for a foreign management and really just integrating the ESG within fundamental analysis and how to construct them that into the funds.
1: Thank you, squally. And uh, Nicola from London based Impacts.
3: I have worked for Impacts for about seven years almost. Early in my career, I worked for large investment banks, boarding Credit Suisse and so forth. I grew up really in global macro. I was a proprietary trader at Credit Suisse. And before Impacts, I was working for a hedge fund uh, based in Hong So I've really worked across a number of different asset classes. I started my career in the late 80s. It's been a while and I came to a point in the career where I really wanted to combine impact with achieving return. So I did my own manager research, having worked with lots of the large institutional investment in Calton, and the list it was quite short at the time, to be honest. So Impacts, uh, as you mentioned, based in London, but really much, very much of a global firm, came on the spectrum as specialists in this transition to a more sustainable economy with sort of proven impact metrics and real yeah, thought leadership as, the, as an expert and a specialist in the area And it's been a terrific, um,
1: Thank you. So today in our conversation, we hope to cover a fair bit of ground. To start, we're going to talk about how responsible investing is maturing into a proven investment strategy with three major dimensions, risk, return, and impact. We're going to talk about how advisors can set themselves apart from the herd to really differentiate their practice and to grow their book, and why every advisor should have RI solutions on the shelves and be proactive in their conversations with clients on RI. Research shows that advisors are underestimating how important it is to their clients for what they do with their investment dollars to matter. Why is RI such an important consideration for advisors?
0: Well, I think the first element of response is because they're just good investments. They're really sound and proven, valid investing strategies. And the business case for integrating environmental, social, and governance criteria into you know investment decision making has been really strong and proven time and time again. We have these institutional investors that have been investing. That way for decades now. And the fact of the matter is, we're now offering the same proven strategies to retail investors, and they actually hear about that. When your clients actually want to invest in a certain way, it might be a good idea for an advisor to have these options on their shelves.
1: Deborah, I think there's a lot of misperception about the maturity and the depth of the ESG strategy.
0: So we. We were, you know, we've been in, in the space for about 30 years and yes, 30 years ago, it might have been niche, but what we've seen in the last years is really an increase in interest and the mainstreaming, if you want, of integration of these ESG factors into investment decisions. If you look at the recent year, just in 2020, the growth in assets under management in Canada for responsible investing funds and ETFs was 55% of asset growth just for that one year. If you compare that to the general Industry, it was only eleven percent. So it's fivefold the growth. So there's a a definite switch here, a shift towards more responsible investing. And what we know, and we've been, you know, conducting surveys with private retail investors over the past four years, and every other year is that there's an increase in interest from clients. For a type of investment that would not only look into the financial side of things, but also look into environmental and social practices of the companies that we choose to include in our portfolios. However, what we see is that it's probably still niche for advisors because there's a small minority of them actually addressing this type of investments with their clients. It's about 16% of them. Whereas it's about you know, two-thirds of investors that want to incorporate that into their portfolio. So there really is a gap. There's a difference between the interest of the client and the amount of conversations that advisors are having. So I think advisors, they underestimate the interest of investors for this type of investment. And they might also confuse the lack of questions for a lack of interest on the part of the investor. Most of Investors, retail investors, they will rely completely on their advisors for ideas, for new investment ideas, for confirmation of what they think might be good for them. So if the advisor is not proactive on this, the investor will probably not raise the, uh, the topic.
1: Yeah, they could be quite disappointed by this, especially if they have such a, a desire to see their investment dollars make an impact Can investors really have an impact when they invest?
0: Yes, there are different ways that they can. They can definitely help green companies grow. So those companies that are actively working at solutions for environmental and social issues, they're in need of investments, they're in need of, of shareholders, they're in need of capital, and that is one way that they can do it. But they can also really help drive the way to a more sustainable economy by investing in those companies that are being proactive in the, in the way that they set their objectives, the way that they're tweaking their business model to reduce on their negative impact and improve on their positive impact, no matter the sector that they're working in. If we want to really drive the energy transition and drive the economy towards a lower carbon of itself, we need to work in every sector of the economy. And investing responsibly is one of the ways to do that.
2: And, and I'll add, uh, there's just a, a few points, even uh, when, when it comes to advisors and the one underestimating. And, and I can understand sometimes the confusion from their part, because uh, like I mentioned in my opening remarks, when you think about ESG, it's so broad and how can you quantify and how do you make sure it actually has a return? I think when you think about these type of strategies, so the market sometimes is too short term oriented. And these type of goals sometimes, well, most of the times, it, it, it's a long term uh, goal. that you really have to see uh, a connection, the correlation between doing the right thing, how the company invests, uh, if it's an energy transition, as the company invests in, in, into those metrics, going forward, there's an energy consumption that's going to be a lot less. There's going to be less liability. And there's some companies that come to mind that had some issue in California. And so it, it's a question of education too. And for the advisors, the only remark I will say is that it, it's here to stay because I've been hearing it since I started like really getting into the the weeds, the really integrating it within the investment and the asset management side, mm-hmm. that it's just a, a fad and it, it, it's not going to, it's not going to last, but I think it's here to last. And I think eventually the way I see it is eventually my, my hope is that ESG integration will even be talked about. It's just going to be part of the process. So for the advisors, I would say that I, I think it's going to be important to learn more and more about it. And I think the next generation It's going to be mandatory because you're already seeing it, talking to my son, talking to other teenagers. They want to make sure it's not just about the shareholder anymore. It's about the stakeholder. So you want to make sure that the company is doing the right thing for the longer term. And I can understand, again, that this connection between the return and and the short term performance from a stock within a year. But I think it's one has to cancel the noise and make sure that what we do invest, in, and it. it's a question of education as well, and learning more of the process of it. And we'll get more into the discussion after how we could do integrated, but those are the aspects I would we'll add. The industry is is prone to short-termism.
1: Is it possible that because of that kind of short-termism, that because ESG and responsible investing are longer-term ideas, that, that investors in general may have the conflict between the short-termism and the long-term view uh, on these, like maybe investors view it as important and urgent, but the advisors view it as important, but not urgent. And maybe what needs to happen more is that the urgency rises. We're starting to see that, that there's momentum happening as ESG and responsible investing uh, as an idea take
2: hold and become more mature. And it's being led by shareholder engagement, right? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the keys where it's really one of the biggest tool that we have as a, as an asset manager, when you think about shareholder engagement, because it's really, it's the start to have a dialogue with those companies. And that's again, the disconnection between short-term and long-term. Sometimes when we have this, these conversations, sometimes it's with the board. We don't talk to the board every quarter. It's a yearly process when it's proxy season, companies do reach out and we have a conversation with them. And that doesn't happen overnight. And it it happens over several years. And then we could actually start to make a difference between that the ones that are actually making a difference and the ones that actually are brushing it off and bring the whole notion of greenwashing to the table. So I think that is really I, I like at digital like global asset management, it's one of the biggest tools that we have. It, 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 it's really engaging these companies and see the ones that are actually responding and having a conversation with them. So it, it really again brings to that long term aspect because when you think even from a portfolio manager in what performances on a year in basis, well one has to be believe in in some of these fundamental analysis that sometimes it takes time, sometimes there's a disconnection between the market. It, you, you think about renewable last year, renewable valuation went went really up and everybody was on board. This year, the, with the volatility of the market, you've seen some rotation. I I don't believe renewables are done. I think it's just a question of sometimes the market reacting really fast on short-term noise, but one has to stick to believing in these long-term metric and believing uh, the same thing as company that grows and the return on investment capital is really important. And the issue ties in, in, into that. Yeah, absolutely. And so from your perspective, how would you engage
1: with the companies that you're meeting with? And secondly, do you have any examples that you can talk about where you engaged with a company and saw
2: some improvement take place? Absolutely. Several examples. And when we started, a lot of them didn't have a social responsible report or didn't have any. I mean, they would talk about ESG, but what they wouldn't have a per se strategy. And sometimes it's also guiding those companies because then too, uh, the board, the company tries to learn. Because uh, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of different entities. We're going from SASB, PRI. It could be confusing. And, and some of these surveys are actually cumbersome. But absolutely, there's been positive and there's been negative as well, where some companies completely ignored them after se- several years. But the ones where they do engage and have a conversation, and it's both ways. Because as the Digital Global Asset Management, we also have metrics uh, uh, to show them that we're actually going that route. So when we have a conversation with that one, we're actually doing it as well. So it's very important to to follow those those strategies. So there's been a couple of, of companies, if it's from a board diversity, adding we've seen some companies that had one woman after several conversation, you saw that they really start to accelerate adding two, three women on the board, even from a diversity standpoint within the company. There's many examples I, I could cite. Nicola, I think you wanted to chime in before so I'll let you uh, talk as well. No, thank you. I just wanted to
3: add to... That question of short-term long investment horizon that there are trillions of dollars now from institutional investors that are very much long-term minded. You think about pension plan obligations, they're a decade, decade from the future. So if they try to match their assets and liabilities, the likes of the Council of Institutional Investors or the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, the Investor Network on Climate Risk. So these are all conversations that are being held with companies with longer-term horizons, and we've seen a sea change in the eagerness of companies to engage to report. their huge growth in numbers in terms of how much companies are reporting, and we can get a little bit into the quality of that reporting as well. That's just Stuff doesn't really tell you much, but if you know take a materiality approach. For us, it is, as equity investors, the risk tool, And so our turnover in our equity funds is something around five years. So that's a reasonably long horizon. It's not private equity, but it is certainly, we are minority shareholders, and our objective really is to Use that process to assess the character and the quality of the company, because the quality of those engagements, uh, those conversations tell you a lot about the management team and how they think of their risks and how they operate their company. And that specialist of looking at sustainability and how that fits into the long term resiliency of the global economy, we focus on what are the opportunities. We know that they're going to be winners and losers at the company level. So for us, it's about building resiliency with the NFT company that we have. And I can give you a few examples, physical climate risk. We have a climate you know, scientist in our team. Some sectors like food and others may have some decent reporting on things like water risk. But for example, we went, and did a deep dive on our water utilities. Do they understand their risk in terms of water sourcing and so forth? And it was quite surprising how little it was being talked about for it. So we went and took the physical data that's available and would go to a, let's say, Asia-based water utility say, here are the risks we see from what we can see. They took that to the board and then came back to us and said, here are the rest of our assets. Can you map the climate risk for these assets as well? And there's incredible exchange of information. And they say working with companies to to make their operational models better for the long term. And that's also, as Pat was saying, reporting and sustainability processes. Some companies are very small. They don't have the resources to report that 20 5,000 ESG data search. And then, of course, another big topic for us is human capital, especially after, during, of course, and after what we see in the pandemic. So it's not, it is importantly about diversity and pay equity, but it's about family policy, flexibility at work, and pay equity transparency. So all of those conversations led by which company are certain topics most material in terms of that applies to them, makes for a better understanding and a better company.
1: Thank you, Nicola. That institutional sponsorship of these initiatives is going to be a very significant driver on valuations, on qualitative assessments, analysis. It's such a primary concern at the institutional level, which is very significant fundamentally, how can you possibly ignore that when there's so much institutional sponsorship driving these changes at these companies? If I'm an advisor and I'm ignoring this, then really I'm missing out on a huge opportunity, which my clients are actually interested in. Sometimes clients feel they don't have the room to bring that, or when they have brought it up, it hasn't really been taken seriously. And the advisor sort of brushes it aside because... It's it seems to be a secondary concern. Maybe that's the segue to talk about the opportunity that advisors have to differentiate themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. At What we see happening: humans, they're creatures of habits, and you might have as an advisor a recipe that has always been working. And why would you change if it has been working? But the fact of the matter is, we are in a transition right now, and. The money is also being transferred to the next generation. It's estimated that around $900 billion will be passing through from hand to the younger generation. So millennials and women that will be inheriting that money from usually their parents or their husband. And what we know is that women and millennials are the two segments that are more interested in investing through to their values, to their priorities, closer to the benefits for community, for the environment, for the planet. So. If, as an advisor, you're not being mindful of that shift while well, you're at risk of seeing up to maybe 70% of your assets just leaving your practice because you're not being proactive in your conversations and you're not connecting with the successors of your clients. So you've been working very hard at building your practice and because you're not careful of those shifts happening, you're not aligning with the investment preferences of your new clients, of the heirs of your actual clients, you might be losing that asset to other advisors that are seizing that opportunity. So it really is something to keep in mind. The responsible investing and understanding the ESG and the value of it can really act as an insurance policy for your practice in a way.
1: This is probably the clearest cut opportunity for advisors to change the nature of their business going forward.
0: Nicola, I see you nodding. Do you want to chime in? Yeah, no, I
3: absolutely uh, agree. I think also I understand how traditional advisor practices have that earlier experience of the thin stocks and tobacco's done pretty well in the the time period X many years ago thereabouts. Obviously, what energy traditional energy will do well. So there's sort of. Nothing today tactically or shorter horizon. There aren't valued parts of the market. It doesn't make absolute sense then. But having said that, the whole backdrop is entirely different now. We have the sort of top down in terms of we are decarbonizing the globe. We have now net zero goals that cover the vast majority of the global economy. And even if you may not agree with the policies or even with the science, there's no question that in terms of portfolio risk, if you will, you are now looking at policy risk if you are not investing with a more sustainable lens. So again, Impacts really looks at it from a risk tool. What are the risks to the business models? Companies who are non-adaptive or not able to change their business model get left behind. For us, it's very much uh, hand in hand as a financial imperative to include these parameters, which yes, twenty years ago, maybe twelve years ago. There were even some of these acronyms, but now this is a financial risk decision and horizon and sort of awareness.
1: I I think what's interesting is just to, you know, look at the contrast between the fact that 85 percent of institutions have gotten behind ESG and only 16 percent of retail advisors at some point, obviously. Whether advisors believe it or not, there's going to be a reconciliation where everybody's on board. So the question is, when do you warm up to the validity of ESG? I think that's a really big question that advisors have to address for themselves. I'm surprised, like, in terms of looking at the research to find how engaged investment companies are with their investee companies in this process of assessing risk through the ESG lens. And Pasquale, just to come back to you, to circle back to what we were talking about
2: earlier, are, are you finding collaboration with your investee companies? Because ESG doesn't have any standard, it's the lack of standardization. Like accounting was 60 years ago, where it was a lot yeah. more rules coming in and then a lot more standards. It's a question of time. There will be standards coming our way. But until then, uh, to your point, Pierre, I think it's a question of, of calling the companies uh, again, right? What's the proper way? How, what do they need to do? What really, at the end of the day, like Nicolas said, uh, it's managing risk. And the, the more you manage the risk, the more you have better returns for the long term, less liability issues you're going to have down the road. But I always tell the companies, and this is why it's also important for Dejanais to set goals and to show an example that if I'm engaging with a company and I'm telling them, this is the way, not necessarily the right way of doing it, but you should consider Uh, these alternatives. And we're, by the way, we're doing the same thing. It it speaks. We're not just saying it to say it. We're actually doing it ourselves. So it's becoming more and more important that the company is engaging with us. So they're trying to figure out as well. But at the end of the day, nobody knows the company better than themselves. And if there's a certain if I'm talking about SANSB or TCFD, and if there's something they're not, you know, from a disclosure perspective that they're not really comfortable with, well, then tell me what you feel comfortable with and maybe we can have a material or non-material financial impact to your company because at the end of the day, it will have an impact to your return. So it's that two-way stream of having those conversations with the company and educating and, you know, sometimes uh, you don't need to do these 75 reports. At the end, you know what it is that is going to drive your company. You have all the information. And uh, another thing is, the company, the more you're transparent, the better it is, the less liability you can issue because... The boards are trying to figure it out as well, because they're, they're because you, you can't put these data into your 10K because there's liability issues. They're, they're a bit not afraid, but they're holding back. But it's going to be a question of time. The standards are going to come. Uh, they will have to provide that information and it's up to them to tell us what really has an impact. So uh, again, it, it's a question of educating, going into that right direction. That's going to just help us to make the wise decision, not just from a shareholder perspective, but from a stakeholder perspective. It's only a
1: matter of time before it trickles down to the entire business. There's a difficulty probably identifying what ESG is. If I was running a retail advisory business, I would be wondering what's keeping me from doing things that are synonymous with what's happening at the institutional level.
0: I think it's rather, it's it's all a matter of education and, and knowledge and understanding. Advisors are used to comparing investment products on two dimensions, risks and returns, and correlate that with their clients' needs in terms of time horizons and risk tolerance, et cetera. But we're adding information and criteria that they're not used to doing this and their environmental and social and governance issues. And they're really hard to pinpoint. They're intangible. They're hard to quantify. They're hard to measure. There's no standards in the industry. Depending on your methodology, you might give more importance to one criteria compared to another. The information that you have access to as an advisor is there's a lot of it. but The quality is lacking. It's sometimes not reliable. It's not comparable. So how do you deal with this immense amount of information that you might feel is important, but you don't really know how to synthesize to analyze, and what impact will it have on your portfolio makeup? So understandably, it has taken a long time. And I think this kind of conversation that we have is actually helping to try and simplify and explain the science behind it, and perhaps also reassure advisors that Uh, they don't need to have all the answers to try and incorporate this type of strategies because uh, we're here to help. To give you an example, as my role is to help advisors understand the strategies, understand how they effectively make makeup, understand how they can incorporate that. We actually have a training program. It's a certification program that advisors are welcome to, and we actually explain to them, what are these ESG factors? How are they incorporated in our decision-making processes? And it's also a good way for them to understand that if you're an active manager, while most of our portfolio managers impacts and, and DGAM being two of them, we have, they have preparatory ESG assessment process. So we don't rely on third-party data providers because we have issues with the way data is made. And Pasquale just addressed that exactly, is the fact that the companies know themselves, what is important to them and what might affect their business in the future. And so we need to rely on the companies and the data that that is provided to us. So... I think education with advisors is key to them incorporating this type of solutions and products into their practice. They need to educate themselves and then they might need to educate their clients as well to let them know that there are options that can allow them to invest in a way that will help them meet their future liabilities and get to their financial objectives, but also have a positive impact on the planet and community.
1: I think it would make sense to share a link to the the education that you just talked about, the, the training. So maybe the uh, training program that you guys offer is a great starting point.
0: If I might uh, add something, and maybe Nicole and Pasquale will chime in, in there as well. I think we're It's also important for advisors to get educated to really understand the strategies because now that everyone has been launching responsible investing products, CTS mutual funds, it's getting harder and harder to differentiate between the different offerings. And everyone seems to have the same type of products. Everyone seems to have the same type of responsible investing strategies, some exclusion, ESG integration, shareholder engagement. But the question is to what extent? Are portfolio managers actually using them? And to what extent are they able to get results from that? And to what extent are they reporting on the results as well? And these are all questions that advisors should, you know, ask themselves and ask their wholesalers, but they they really should be understanding those strategies so that they're able to find the ones that are better able to meet their client's needs. Otherwise, they run into the risk of maybe having disappointed investors at the end of it.
1: Exactly. Pasquale, how about, or Nicola, how about solving environmental issues? Do you have a good handle on, on, on what companies are working on that?
3: Well, absolutely. Uh, we created, impacts a really a taxonomy or a nomenclature and a whole structure for environmental markets, as we call it, that was the 1999. And um, I'm following our discussion, lots of interest, because one of, I think, the key things is to look for authenticity. So I sympathize with advisors who are overwhelmed with ESG or sustainable product. I think at the end of the day, partnering with an authentic, experienced partner like Dijardin has that you've experienced to differentiate. That's really important. And thinking for impact. So on the environmental solution side, we really organized that opportunity sets over 20 years ago into four key areas. Covering energy, water, food, and waste. Those even intuitively make sense because those are core parts of the economy that enable economies to function. So within energy, of course, it's about renewables, wind and solar or biofuels or other alternatives. It's early days, but even the possibility of using green hydrogen. But actually, interestingly enough, in that sort of alter that new energy base, we call it. The vast majority of the solutions that that are investable in an equity portfolio are actually energy efficiency. Because renewables is a really important area, but from a number of stocks in terms of opportunity, the quality companies there is not a big group. And so on the energy efficiency side it's everything from kind of industrial energy efficiency. Some of these are hardware components or maybe analog semiconductor chips. Some of them are software solutions. You have companies now that are helping construct a building where engineers and architects and and other parties that are part of the construction now have access to an embodied carbon module. So that they're burning the building as they're constructing the building, they can assess really the sort of carbon footprint of the building. So, you know, those kinds of solutions. And water is everything from transporting it to treating it, testing it again. Core ingredient for any economy, you can't grow an economy without probably even faster growth than population for, for water. Those are two examples that you can be defensive. If you can go into water utilities or, or some of the treatment needs that are more, yeah, probably defensive part of the portfolio, or of course there are industrial or other end markets that will have some more cyclicality. For us, that construction of a portfolio of environmental solutions it's important to, to achieve lots of diversification, including food, and I mentioned waste as well.
1: So is there, any, is there any proof of the impact? And how do you measure, how do you quantify the impact?
3: It's not as simple as just doing a sort of traditional carbon footprint from our point of view. A carbon footprint... Scope one, two, maybe part three, which is emissions at the factory, at the energy use, and maybe transportation and so forth, that is a good start. But for environmental solutions, sometimes you have a company that makes insulation or that does water treatment. That is not a carbon-free process, absolutely, at the sort of point of production or service. What you also have to look at is what does that insulation achieve when you install it in the home compared to the baseline competing product or a more, you know, efficient water pump or a utility expense, maybe 80 or 90% of it's budget on energy to move water out. It's heavy and treatment costs a lot of energy as well. So really, the idea of, ah, if you have a more energy efficient water pump, where does it run? What's the energy source? How more efficient is it against the other pump and so forth? So one of the reasons that, in fact, hesitated to do all that work is because it means you have to look at each company in the portfolio, look at each business line, and then it sets that relative carbon efficiency, if you will, or carbon offset but that's not something we've done for six years. We're working on our seventh report and we wanted to be very mindful that this was conservative data and that it was also vetted by an external environmental consultant. So yeah, there are ways to quantify positive benefit. And it's not just carbon, as I mentioned, it's water, amount of water treated or provided, it's the amount of waste recycled and it's the amount of renewable energy generated. So that's the kind of, advanced work that we do. And frankly, it takes us about two quarters each year to do that kind of company by
0: company work. I would say Pierre, that starting a conversation by showing the impact a fund can have on the planet and on communities is actually a very good way to kickstart a conversation about responsible investing, because really you want to start By showing what responsible investing does. Forget about how it works and how we choose the companies. You start by showing the results and then, you know, you reverse engineer it and and then you talk about it, but really showing that when you invest, you you can bank on good potential return. And the previous years have shown very good returns, but you could also invest and have these companies work and basically do whatever you're doing yourself as an individual to try and reduce maybe your own footprint maybe you use your bicycle more maybe you compost i don't know it, consumers have been changing their habits to reduce the impact they can have on the environments and so if they're changing their investment habits as well it just makes more sense and so starting with the impact with the result is a good way to start a conversation
2: so pierre I, i'm just going to chime in because uh, we, we we talked about a lot of different subjects well you know I'm just going to follow up for a couple of things. Prior, you mentioned how does advisor, you know, reach out to the next generation. And I could bet you if they do educate themselves and they're able to just start talking about it, I think they'll make a connection. Even if it's the, the women, like everyone mentioned, the next millennials, I, I think there it's starting that conversation. And then if the advisor is able to have a conversation, they will be able to make a connection because I think it's becoming, like I mentioned before, I think it's going to be really important. And then I could also... S- see that if you give two companies, you know, or even a fund X and fund Y, one's going to give you a return of 8%, but the other one is going to give you a return, say, of 7%. But you know that you have quality companies that are there for the long term and they're really engaging on ESG framework. I could bet you those people are probably going to pick that one because they want to make sure that they invest for the future. They want to make sure that it's a sound company, not just from a ret- Yes, return, obviously, is the number one priority. It's always going to be important. But I think the next generation is really going to focus. It's okay. What is this company doing? What does it mean to me? What does it mean for the next generation? It, there's You could see that they're questioning it. That if it's, you know, climate changes, water consumption, the next generation, and it's starting younger and younger. So that would be number one. On the subject of how you have an impact, I, again, it's showing, and one of the problems, and this relates to one of the other questions you have, you think again about ESG and how the stuff starts to come out. A lot of the stuff are very subjective. So even from an, an equity analyst or portfolio manager, sometimes it's hard to quantify those subjective recommendations or how do you quantify it into numbers? But the market is evolving. And if you take TCFD or SASB, where most of the disclosure they want is actually quantitative. So in a few years from now, as some of these companies are embarking and starting to disclose these quantitative data, then it started to, for me, it's easy to take those numbers and actually put them in a model and actually start to quantify What's the real impact from a return perspective? Because now I have a a sound data that I actually could do and actually see what the company is doing and engaging with that company within that data. And it's always the example that you, again, if you have, just to say, the ones that are trying to do, I won't mention the company, but a mining company, you know, some of the times, you know, dealing with aboriginals, this company actually went ahead and from a turnover perspective, actually when it's hunting season and when there's certain holidays, well, you know what? We know that it's really important. Take the time that you need, and then you just come back. By just changing that type of mindset, and you, you just saw the, the turnover really start to, to to go down. And then that information, as a portfolio manager, I could take it, bring it to another mining company. By the way, have you ever considered this? You could see that you know the turnover actually really improved. So that's the way you could actually start to measure impact from one company to another and seeing the, the trajectory that the company is actually doing the right thing.
1: We definitely don't live in the world of cutthroat capitalism anymore, where the capital market is blind. Capital markets have become more visionary and more forward-looking and more concerned. And there's a lot of talk about the tail wagging the dog, where you get into subjects of greenwashing. Companies will make bold statements like they're going to be net zero by 2030. What remains to be seen is whether or not they actually deliver on it, because that's eight, nine years into the future. How much of that work, Nicola, does impacts do in order to flush out cases of grain washing? Are there any examples where companies said they were doing something and turned out they weren't?
3: Yeah, thank you, Pierre. Absolutely. It is. The thing about this aspect of working with or looking at companies is it is time consuming. It is manual. And so that's Part of the issue and part of the, I would say, advantage and the reason why you want to pick an active manager, because you cannot uh, speak to 3,000 companies at once. But if you have a portfolio of 40 or 60 names across a pretty big team, absolutely. And you must have those conversations. And one of the things that impacts does is part of the investment process, it's not just the financial quality, the balance sheet, the margin, so forth, and the operational quality we create. Uh, company by company, an in interval ESG score. And we use a materiality approach because otherwise you're looking at thousands of different metrics, comes back to that whole risk and shareholder vulnerability or shareholder value creation question. So what we do is we look at each company and see what are the most uh, material issues? Is it toxic vision? Is it workplace practices, health and safety? Is it chemical safety? Is it their carbon footprint? And then drill down into what are they reporting? What are their processes? What are their targets? And as you say, there's a little bit certainly going on of uh, we're gonna put these very aggressive targets forward and that, that'll be for someone else to deliver them because those are 10, 20, 30 year targets. So we want to see the science lead targets and we want to see progression, which is also why the engagement is a longer term exercise. You know, most things don't happen inside of six months. Sometimes they do. But as you're looking for quality management people and the processes that they use and the targets that they set, that's something we want to, to revisit. And for us, therefore, we've said that before we invest in a company as best as we can. And then we track them and we talk to them every six months, every year, maybe a quarter at some instances, and press them on their progress to achieve changing goals in the areas where we think they propose improvement. Because if we're a shareholder, we already think they're a good company. So we're not going to be expecting or seeing cases of, as you say, total rewashing where it's something that's completely, yeah, inappropriate. But we know that, that there's improvement and we're across the industry. We know what their gear are doing. We press them we'll uh, be their own sort of landscape.
2: And all that for the greenwashing. And and this is again why it's important to have uh, the dialogue, the shareholder engagement, because you follow up. So you see the ones that are actually approving and the ones that are actually taking you for a ride, basically. So it again, that's really important from that perspective.
1: It's interesting because all it would take is to realize that what we're talking about here is just as important as accounting. As an assessment, we look at publicly traded companies all the time. We look at their earnings. It's the ongoing dialogue for all companies, but in particular, the ones we're investing in. And all of that's regulated, and that's why the reporting is so important on a quarterly basis. I'm just wondering, do you see a future where we're gonna have the ESG season?
3: With respect to when are we going to be there, we are already there. UK said yesterday, as part of the upcoming G7 meeting, they would like to push forward that large companies basically are forced to report up of the TPFD. So again, what's the most compelling incentive for most investors? It is dollars and cents. It is risk. It is missing out on return or sitting on portfolios without content that will be left behind. So from, from my perspective, I think that's the most effective tool in how many companies do you have that have legacy businesses or assets or stranded assets where that are suddenly going to be faced with decarbonizing sector by sector that are suddenly faced with an inability to, to, to adapt. And you talked about the visionary investing in capital markets. And you know what one of the lightning rod tools did, much as we, left to also eat social media, everything is instant. A misstep by a company, whether it's diversity, whether it's pollution, whether it's private security, boom, it is in the headlines, and there goes the share price. So it is that kind of instant news and accountability that I think the investors or the consumers also now have. Exactly.
1: It's a, a pleasure to talk to people who are very passionate about the work that they do and the meaning it has for them. I, I don't think you can value anything more highly than that engagement that you all have. It's really nice to see that that as a company, you're walking the talk as well.
0: Speaking of walking the talk and having these ideas and convictions really stem from the top of our company are really important to us and the like fact that Yes, we are integrating these ESG criterias and the products that we can offer to the public, but it's much broader than that in the way that we do business. It's in the products, but it's also in the way that we conduct ourselves as responsible corporate citizens as well. So we're a large financial cooperative and the ESG integration is not only in the products, but it's also in our decision-making processes for insurance offering, for credits and financing. The same way we require commitments and disclosure and convictions from the companies that we invest in, of course, we'll do the same and we'll also report on, on, on the financial side of the business, but also on the impact side of the business and the impact side of the investments that investors are entrusting their money to, to us. It really goes
1: both ways. How do you differentiate between all of the
2: RI options out there? So that's a really good question here, because like I was mentioning at the beginning, there's a lot of different entities, right? At the beginning, when I was doing my research and everything, I would use everything that's out there because I was trying to understand. But at the end of the day, like uh, Nicola was mentioning too, small, smaller companies don't have the resources, So you try to really uh, help them out as well and see what, uh, it could have a, a material financial or non financial impact of other companies. So, the ones where I'm putting more of an emphasis right now, one is where Nicola mentioned is the TCID, which is a task force for uh, cl- climate financial disclosure. And that too, we're asking the company to go there, but there's a challenge as well with that because it's a scenario analysis. So, it's whatever variable you put in, it's whatever you get out. And you could compare two companies and they'll have two different answers or output. But the fact is that at least they're doing it to us that is going to, to us, the, the, the right direction. And it's again, doing that disclosure that's really important. The other one is, is, is SASB. Well, when you think about it, it, it's very concentrated. There's not that many, especially depending on the, the sector that the company deals with. It's a certain amount of disclosure that they have to do. It's not a lot. When you think about their disclosure right now, it's close to about 80 and it's specific to their sector. So those are the ones that we integrate within our proprietary research. And then on top of that, we layer our shareholder engagement, our dialogue, our own process of what we find that is really important to the company. So GRI, it, it is also valid because, and as for that, a PRI as well. Those are the ones that have been there for a while. There's a lot of information at the end of the day. That it's really trying to concentrate. What do you really think that it could have a, a, a material impact on the company? And you have to try to what the ones that really matter uh, to them. And again, I'm going to say this again, it is up to the company to really tell us what could be the impacts, And it's gonna be a case by case and that's where it becomes really important. So for now, because like you mentioned before too, accounting, and I mentioned that before in 60 years, seven years ago, there was no standards from an accounting perspective. I think ESG is going the same route. I think it's just a question of time that we will have standard and people will talk about it. You could see it. the Proxy season, compensation becoming an issue. Uh, people are voting against it. More and more pension funds are being more and more vocal. And and not just one pension fund. Everybody is, is, is going that route. So companies need to be on board. So it's still a learning process, but I could see the light at the end of the tunnel where it, it's becoming more and more uh, concentrated.
1: It'll be interesting to see if ESG becomes adopted
2: in the way GAP was adopted. Absolutely. It's the same type of mind frame when you think about it. Again, it's assessing risk. It's an important disclosure from the company, and we need to be aware of it. At the end, it's just mitigating risk. Is there a future where this becomes regulatory or is this something that remains self regulated? I I hope so because if it does get regulated, then it takes a lot of the confusion out of the market because at least we know exactly what's expected. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. So it will level the playing field.
3: Some standardization is helpful and it's not going to be easy, but I think we will move in that direction because there are so many. different metrics and data points and broom chips. I think there are books that over time it will gel into some standard metric that we use, but I think cohesion will out.
1: So do you see that coming from the financial market authorities or does that come from regulators?
0: It's a little bit of both. The requirements for ESG disclosures have been multiplied over the last years by financial regulators and financial authorities. And what we see is more and more it's the, the will to establish some kind of a baseline. So I think as portfolio managers, we don't really want walls or ceilings as to how we do our ESG analysis and integration, but really having this kind of baseline where, you know, anything under that should not be called responsible or sustainable investing might probably be helpful. And we see new regulations coming out um, to Europe, and we've seen seen it coming to the border as well. Canada will follow suit. And I, I know that work is already being done. The question is, how soon will it come out and how stringent or maybe demanding will it be?
1: What are your thoughts for where do you start as an advisor?
0: I think you, you need to start by knowing your product and knowing your clients. So these are things that you usually do as an advisor. This is just part of your everyday job when you talk to your client, you ask the questions, you get to know them. And if you ask the right questions, you'll know what they care about. And there's a good chance that you will find an entry point there to talk about sustainable investing. And it usually is a very positive outcome because some investors, they don't know that their investments can actually change the world for the better. They might have no idea that this type of options exist. And it's usually a, a really positive eye opener. So just Starting the conversation is usually positive with your client. And in terms of knowing your product, if you're looking for actively managed solutions, in terms of what you should be looking for is look for a good fund manager that is really experienced and has strong expertise and conviction with their ESG solutions. So, What you're looking for really is through ESG integration, that is really ingrained in the decision-making process. That means no systematic approach, really a proprietary ESG assessment. Ideally, it would also be ingrained from the top management of that company. You're looking for a very strong engagement process so that this portfolio manager actually engages with investee companies to have them improve on their ESG practices. Of course, if they're doing that, they usually have a robust reporting uh, system and a disclosure on their extra financial performance. And if you can have access to thematic impact investing, that's always plus, whether it's bonds or, or stocks, thematic impact investing is really interesting to clients because this is where you can have a measurable impact on communities and, and the environment. And this is really empowering for your clients. So if you have a mix of that then you have quality solutions to offer to your clients.
2: For my part, I'll keep it short. I think, obviously, what Deborah says, <laughs> know your client, right? Obviously, not all clients are probably interested in ESG, but know your clients. Right? And I think educating themselves or learning the process, obviously, a lot of information, I think it's really key. Right? And I think if they wanted to have or start to engage with the next generation, and as there's estate planning or, or vice versa, I think the next generation is going to be one of their top priorities. So I think it's really important that they put a focus on it because it, it, it's going to be, I'm hopeful that in five years from now, we're not talking about it. It's, it's just part of the process. There's no such thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's ingrained in this and it's just part of doing your research, doing your fundamental. And the companies that won't will just be excluded and won't have access to the capital. Versus, a and that that and So, I think it, it's an important step to for the ones that want to learn. Is is, is a lot of information. You educate yourself. You learn and know your clients. Uh, but I think it, it's something that you need to be aware of because I, I don't think it's a fad. I think it's here to stay, and it's going to be part of process.
3: I think I would summarize it as uh, a discovery process, an educational process of review for your clients, and then I think importantly, you don't have to go alone. They are timeless resources there fabulous partners who worked in this space and looked at investment that kind of blends for a very long time. And um, they're more than happy to help them at this point. They're well-equipped to, do just such a, such, to be just such a help along the process.
1: This is where you, you really start to formulate it. And if people are wondering, like, how do you address inequality, this is a really good starting point. What's given rise to the ESG and responsible investing is the inequality itself that has risen over the last 10, 20 years in leaps and bounds. This last year with the pandemic has really magnified some of those inequalities so that it's become even more dear to the investing public, to the public in general, but to the investing public in particular in terms of what we're addressing here. Compared to the last decade where all the emphasis has been on passive investing, on indexing, this is a way more exciting topic I want to I want to thank you very much. This has been a really informative, insightful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pierre.
3: Thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Pierre.
1: Let us know what you think about the topics we've discussed. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. If you have not already, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Make sure you give us a like and please, please leave us a rating and or a review. Ratings and reviews are extremely important thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back with you very soon. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Advisor Analyst. You can also find us and follow us on LinkedIn.